Hello and welcome to Delete Delete Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. Scott Field has established a successful career in sports marcoms. Since 2016, he has been the director responsible for communications, marketing and digital at the British Olympic Association, more commonly known as Team GB. Having started his career in the broadcast industry, Scott went on to have a variety of roles in professional football, including Director of Marketing and Communications at Watford Football Club and Head of Communications at the FA. Scott has been lucky enough to build a very successful career in sport, something that he loves. We talked about the buzz of combining a profession and a passion, the difference between the 24-7 demands of football comms and the event-driven nature of the Olympics. We discussed his plan of action as we count down to the Paris Olympics in 2024 and even the LA Olympics in 2028. We also talked about dealing with drug scandals and politics, building athletes' profiles through storytelling, the importance of having comms at the top table and the rising stars from Team GB as we run up to Paris 2024. Scott is a comms big hitter and a truly engaging guest. Enjoy the podcast. Scott, welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage. Great to have you with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Brilliant to be here. So Scott, a great deal of your career has been focused on sport. First football and now Olympic sport with your role at Team GB. Is sport a passion as well as your profession? And could you share a little about your career journey to date? Yeah, uh, sport is a passion like it is for most people in this in this sports mad country, um, isn't it? Um, although I'm always really careful to to point out to people that, that my profession is is media, comms, marketing, right? And the the sport bit is just um, uh, you know that that's my luck, right? I'm lucky enough to work in the sports sector and have done my whole career. It's a fantastic place to um, you know to put my my uh, my sort of craft to bear, I suppose. I, I absolutely love sport. Grown up around sport, with sport, watching playing not to any great level mm-hmm. um you know I, I, it's what what's not to like really so you know having grown up in a sort of sports mad household um yeah i was really fortunate to you know break into sports media mm-hmm. i trained as a as a journalist in broadcast and um that's all i wanted to do really but you know, like a lot of people sport was the the bit you wanted to get to you know, probably doing a bit of news and features on the way. Mm. Um, I was just lucky enough to get to sport really, really early in my career and, um, you know, wrapped on lots and lots of doors, worked for free early in my career, um, which is obviously um, you know, a routine for a lot of people and, and fell into um, to West Bromwich Albion Football Club mm. quite early is on. Is that your home team? That's my home team. Yeah. You'll be able to tell from the accent yeah, throughout the podcast. Yeah. The, uh, the lilt hasn't gone despite my many years being away from the Midlands. And I still go back there with the season ticket now with, with my, my young boy and my dad. So it's fantastic. So football was my, my you know, my, my passion along with one or two other more niche sports. And then, um, yeah, I worked in football for 16 years and had a fantastic career at two football clubs, West Brom or Watford, learning my trade, learning about comms, learning about marketing, learning about audiences, learning about people and relationships and business you know the business of sport uh, and then was able to to get myself to the um to the FA mm. after nine years at two clubs and um thought I knew everything about football having spent nine years at two clubs and realized I knew very very little <laughs> in my first week at the FA and yeah. then um then you know kind of earned my stripes during during a seven-year period there before moving on to the Olympics what did that first week throw at you 
oh, I mean everything. Yeah. Um, it's I, I was. It's interesting, you know, in my in my life now at the British Olympic Association. It is an Olympic Olympic committee. It's not a national governing body, and and I'm always. Uh, pains to point out to people you know at a national governing body the dominant word is governing and and that's it right it's about governance mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden you sort of thrust into this world of um and i don't mean this is a criticism but bureaucracy mm -hmm. governance mm -hmm. rules regulations mm -hmm. people breaking rules having to deal with that um and governing a sport's not easy you know it brings with it a lot of challenges i think so very very quickly i realized that you know where i was in a nimble agile football club in watford you know and if we decided we wanted to paint the wall yellow you know at nine o'clock in the morning by nine thirty, we bought the paint pot and by 10 o'clock we painted the wall yellow mm -hmm. you know when you're in a governing body the machinations are just deeper yeah. than that you know and and the stakeholder environment was probably the biggest learning curve you know realizing that actually you had to bring people along the journey with you whenever you you know whenever there was an action to take and that every action of course has a consequence far-reaching consequence into into the sport so it was fascinating yeah you know and i quickly quickly realized that um um, that that stakeholder landscape was was varied, complicated, you know, fraught with um, with different relationships that you had to find your way through, and it was a pure education. Yeah, fantastic. And so you joined the BOA in 2016, wasn't it? Just prior to the Rio Olympics. So how, how was that? What was that? What what was the, what's different about the BOA when you compare it to the FA, for example? I think, you know, the, well, first of all, football is the national obsession, mm. right? So, um, and it's always on, isn't it? Football, it's like always it? on 24 yeah. seven, yeah. you know, you'll go home tonight and you can watch wall to wall football, mm. can't you? From mm. the moment you get into the moment you go to sleep all through the weekend, it dominates, it dominates the national conversation, mm. you know, every, you know, micro incident is is sort of disproportionately analysed and poured over time and time again. Everything has meaning and impact, and so therefore you are you are always on, always on in football. Uh, and I think you know the nature of, of of the new cycle, the rhythm of the sport is is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I think you step away from football into any other environment, you probably realise it's different. Football is just different. So when I walked into the Olympics, what I found was a was a different environment. And again, this is no criticism, but it was it was a calmer environment. It was structured, and of course it is because we're not governing the sports day to day. You know, we've got big north stars to look at the Olympic Games, and so there was a lot of. Um, preparation a lot of planning you know, ability to sort of th sit think strategize deliver mm -hmm. um uh you know was was there it was there and um what what impressed me with the boa and what i realized very very quickly is that depth of planning mm -hmm. that level of um scrutiny and 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 professionalism that goes into supporting the summer sports and the winter sports in getting to an Olympic Games, their pinnacle and delivering is incredible. And it goes back many, many years. You know, I walked in six months prior to Rio and in many respects, it was ready to go. 
Now, we could have just gone to Rio the day after I got in and gone and delivered it. It's probably a gross exaggeration. But but the point is, you know, the planning had been six, seven years in the making for that moment. Um, and such as we sit here today, you know, in 2023, we're thinking a lot about Paris next year, say, 16 yeah. months time, but yeah. we're off to LA. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of people in LA, lots of work being done in LA for 28 already. Wow. Um, so, you know, the, the whole sort of cadence, the rhythm of the environment is completely different. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll come to Paris in a moment. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, but I just wanted to ask, um, so I associate, uh, the, 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 the Olympics or the, the team GP with some sort of like lottery funding. I mean, we, we did very well in 2012 after a period of not doing so well for quite some time. Is it government funded, the BOA, or are you commercially funded? I mean, typically in the UK, everything's complex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, never yeah. straightforward. The BOA, um, which is the organisation that manages Team GB, yeah. the team, is not government funded. It's 100% commercially funded. So no lottery money, no exchequer money flows into our, our building, our mm. offices. Lottery money and exchequer money in this country is passed through funding bodies um, such as UK Sport, who look after the elite end of sport, and Sport England, who look after participation uh, and grassroots. So UK Sport take and distribute the funding across the Olympic and Paralympic landscape in this country. And that means directly funding the governing bodies of the Olympic and Paralympic sports, such as British cycling or British rowing or British judo, um, as well as the athletes that are on the elite performance pathway. We work alongside UK Sport. We work alongside the governing bodies. They're our members. We're a membership body. So all of the Olympic sports are sort of form, if you like, the, uh, the membership of the BOA. And we work to serve them and their athletes in taking them to the Games. But in doing so, we're completely independent. So all of our monies come from commercial partnerships. And we have a stellar roster of commercial partners. Uh, if you look at our website across the bottom, you'll see you'll see all of them. Great, brilliant high street brands in this country, credible supporters of Olympic sport here and worldwide partners from the IOC um, that, that have global rights. And we do have some you know, patrons and donors that support us along the way as well um, and are, are very, very important uh, in, in supporting our cause. And of course, we generate our own revenues through retail, licensing, etc. But the BOA is independent of government and um, and, and always has been. Um, and for those of a, of a certain vintage, they'll remember, you know, in 1980, that came to bear when the government wanted um, British Olympic athletes and the British Olympic Association to boycott the Moscow 1980 Games along with a number of other countries. The United States boycotted that. Yeah, and the United they? States did. They've not boycotted a game since. And um, and we didn't boycott the Games. You know, the British athletes... Um, Alan their, Wells. Their voice, I, I remember Alan Wells winning the 100 metres. Seb, the great Sebco, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, many other um, standout athletes from this country... Um, I think the athlete voice said to the British Olympic Association, we want to go to the Olympic Games and therefore, you know, it's it's our mandate to take athletes to the Games and, and we decided we would go. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about politics in a, in a moment, if that's all right. Um, just in terms of, 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 you mentioned the Paris 2024 Olympics a moment ago. Um, I think there are just over 500 days to go to that. So what, what's, what's, what's plan what stage of planning are you at for that right now? Um well advanced yeah 
from a performance perspective, I think the team are set. We know um, we know we know the ultimate destination, obviously, but we have our facilities in in Paris, in France, because not all sports are in are in um, are in Paris. For example, sailing is in Marseille. The velodrome mm. is a little bit out of town. Golf is at um, Golf National. Um, question at Versailles. We know all the locations that, that that the athletes will be sighted. We know the facilities we need. We invest uh, probably as much as any National Olympic Committee in facilities outside of the core Olympic environment to make sure the athletes have the best opportunity to prepare. So, for example, we have a high-performance centre, you know, which is essentially a day base where the athletes can get out of the village. They can go and do their training in a Team GB environment on their terms, you know, refuel get some r&r there you know there are chefs there preparing meals for them their friends and family can come and meet them it's a sort of safe space those are the sorts of things we invest in and we also invest in you know facilities that help support the performance of individual athletes and teams as as they require really so we work really closely with all of the olympic sports in this country to work out what is best for them and the athletes that we take to the Olympic Games and, um, and and put our best foot forward. And in performance terms, all of those facilities, our preparation camps, our performance centres, they're set. They're ready to go. We're now in sort of testing mode and building out our processes, how we support, what our staffing models look like. And that's all coming to fruition. Mm. You know, that's all mm. coming to fruition. And um, then from my side, from a marketing and, and comms and, and digital perspective, that's all starting to build. It's yeah. really exciting because we now, you know, we can start to see the shape of the team. We've already started to qualify quota spots and places for the Olympic Games. We've got a good handle on what we think the size and the shape of the team will look like. Uh, and, and really, we're getting ourselves ready now to put the narratives around all of that to take to you know to take to the, the British public and try and invigorate them around the games and drive awareness. I think it's really hard. You know, we live again, said before, in a country that's sport obsessed and there are always big events happening. You know, a week doesn't go by where there's something big on television in sport that we all want to watch and coalesce around. So it's quite hard to get that long build up to an event now because there are so many others on the route to it. Um you know, I'm not sort of kidding myself here. We've got to drive awareness that a Games is happening next yeah. year and it's yeah. happening in France and yeah. it's happening at the time it's happening amongst everything else that's going on in life. So that's one of the big jobs. And then it's about bringing through those brilliant stories of our incredible athletes, humble, everyday, extraordinary athletes that um, some some of whom we know today, mm. yeah. you know, and they've, 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 they've won medals and have, have performed at their peak and will go and continue to do so. Others are known to us today that will burst through onto the scene and, and will become the next big thing. Yeah, well, um, so, I mean, I was watching the um, the European Indoor Championships the other day. Uh, Jasmine Sawyer, um, who I, I, I remember from a previous uh, a sort of championship. Um, she's a real character, isn't she? And she, she broke the seven metre barrier, I believe. Um, to what extent do you uh, represent athletes as part of what you do? So... On a day-to-day -day basis, the athletes are working within their sports. So for Jasmine Sawyer's wearing her Great Britain vest at the weekend and the indoors, she's there under the auspices of, of British Athletics mm -hmm. as her governing body and representing the country within her sport. Our job 
is, you know, as I mentioned before, we're a membership body, is to amplify what is going on in Olympic sport in this country. I should point out at this point that um, in some countries it's not the case, but we're a separate body to the Paralympics team. Mm. So for those people who are wondering why I'm not talking in Paralympics terms, mm. Paralympics GB is a separate body to yeah. Team GB, an organisation, yeah. a different team. We share offices, yeah. we share loads of intelligence and we get on, you know, get on incredibly well, yeah. but they're a different body to yeah. us. In some countries, the two are amalgamated, they're not here. So I'm not omitting the, the Paralympics team, but our focus is very much on the Olympic team because that's our mandate. Um, but we amplify those stories. You know, it is our job to help elevate Olympic sport, particularly outside of games time, which is a real challenge. For, for, for us and for a lot of sports to sort of break through, particularly the narrative of the big professionalised sports, if mm. I could use that term mm. in this country, you know, football, rugby, cricket, mm. dominate the headlines. So our job is to amplify those stories. So for us, it's about supporting the Jasmine Sawyer story or the Keely Hodgkinson story, as it was again at the weekend, amplifying that through our channels, helping support the governing bodies where we can do that. Yeah. In some cases, you know, they, 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 you know, they don't require that, us to do that because they're, they're brilliant at doing it themselves. In other cases, they do want to work with us. What we see across the Olympic landscape are just fantastic stories, untold stories that we want to get hold of and amplify. We're trying to invest more and more in content as we go through yeah. to talk directly to, to our audiences for the obvious reasons that otherwise a lot of these stories don't get heard. Can you give me an example of a, of a, a story that, that, that you might have carried in the past? I think there are many and many and varied for sure. I mean, we're sitting here today on, you know, uh, actually on a, um, International Women's Day. Yes. You think of the sort of great heritage that sits in Team GB, you know, and the sort of um, inspirational figures that mm. we've seen on the team um, that have gone on to lead, you know, generations of athletes up to modern day, mm. you know, through through their own endeavours. We were talking about curling, you know, we won a curling gold medal in um, in Beijing. I love the curling. Just last year. We yeah. all do. Yeah. We all do, don't yeah. we? Everyone invests in the curling for, 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 for the Winter Games. And Eve Muirhead, you know, wins that gold medal. And the first to do so since Ronan Martin and mm. what was termed a famous stone of destiny. Mm. You know, telling that story... You know, of someone you know, such as Rona, a pioneer in her sport, mm. and how that has inspired generations mm. to follow, I think is really important for us. And that's otherwise a sport that perhaps, if we're not amplifying it and talking about it, yeah, who is? So just on that, there's a, it's an interesting point because curling is a great example of a subject that nobody thinks about for four years. And then it's at the forefront of the nation's consciousness when, especially if we're doing well, um, as we as we did uh, quite recently. Um, where, where you've, so you've got sports like that where the Olympics or the, the, the summer or the winter Olympics would be the pinnacle of that sport. Um, then you've got other sports like maybe tennis where there are other sporting events which might actually be seen as the pinnacle of that sport. So Wimbledon might be seen as the pinnacle for tennis. How do you choose in terms of a comms perspective? Do you try and give the, the kind of maybe some of the lesser known sports more more column space or more attention? We try and be equitable because I think that's the right thing yeah. to do. But of course, you're conscious that in some cases, the amplification, you know, for those sports isn't as needed as others. And I do think we have a duty towards those sports that, you know, would otherwise find it really hard to get their stories out there or those athletes that would otherwise find it really hard to get their stories out there. Because we also live in a time where 
we kind of take the success of the team for granted a little bit or we're at risk of doing that mm. you know mm. we we come home with you know 60 plus medals every mm. time mm. and that can you know particularly where team sports involved that means there could be over a hundred individuals coming back to this country with a medal around yeah so sort of gone are the days where you could name you know in five minutes all of the medalists <laughs> from the british team yeah uh, and they would sort of dominate the narrative we've now got people who are winning golds that actually you might struggle to remember or yeah. others might struggle yeah. to remember so you know, we have to work really hard to support those sports and athletes that don't naturally get their stories told yeah. and retold yeah and of course i think that's part of it isn't it from a communications point of view is you want to present fresh stories yeah for the audience yeah. you know you don't want the sort of how many times can we hear from i don't know i'm gonna be unfair on him now but harry kane in football got it yeah how many times yeah. can we hear the harry kane story yeah. over and over and over and that's not to belittle him and it's a great story and he's a great individual but but you know, I think there are rich stories to be found everywhere. We've got to go and turn those stones over and, and sort of find them. I think one of the challenges sometimes for us is just ensuring that the Olympians know there's a value in their story. Yeah. There is a value in your story, yeah. where you're from. Yeah. And that might be to resonate in your own community. Yeah. Nothing more than that. But that's a good story to be told. And we, you know, I think our, 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 our brand, if I can use that term, I'm sure I can on this podcast, but when we're talking about and thinking about marketing and comms and we're thinking about our brand, we're thinking about these are everyday individuals that are achieving extraordinary things, but they walk the same streets as you and I. They mm. shop in the same, mm. the same shops. Mm. They drive the same cars mm. and, um, and they share the same stories and we want to ground them in their communities. Everyone should be able to look into Team GB and see something that resonates with them. Mm. You know, we, we are diverse. If you put the sum of our parts together, we're all four nations. We're every part of the country. We're every accent. We are, you know, we're, we're every size and shape. Mm. We're every age. You know, mm. we have 13-year-old skateboarders at the games mm. and we have 65-year-old equestrians yeah. Yeah. winning medals. So when you take the full gamut of sort of diversity in every sense, um, there should be something everyone should be able to look into. Our job is to try and connect those stories back to communities and help the sports and the athletes do that. Yeah, Some athletes have been great at doing that. I think of someone like Emily Campbell, um, weightlifter who went to Tokyo, you know, who, who had only picked up weights, you know, five years prior, I think, to winning her silver medal. And, you know, now I see her on Google adverts and Schwarzkopf adverts. And, yeah. you know, she told a story and, it, you know, it's a great story and she's got a great personality and she's full of charisma. And, you know, she was just sponsored by the guy in the local shop who was just subbing her a few quid every week. And it's brilliant. She went to Tokyo and won a, won a silver medal. I, I love the fact that sports like skateboarding, like BMX, you know, those sorts of sports that maybe maybe some kids who wouldn't have naturally identified with Olympic sports, um, they can because they recognise it's something they do themselves, right? Yes, which, completely. Which I think is wonderful. Um, um, we, we've talked a little bit about positive stories, yeah. um, which is a key part of, 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 of communications in your role. Now, another test of, of a communicator's metal, I guess, is how you deal with a crisis or difficult situations. And the modern Olympics has had to contend with, you know, wars, boycotts, protests, walkouts, doping scandals, even terrorist attacks. Um, more recently, there have been debates about the participation of transgender athletes uh, and whether athletes from Russia should be allowed to compete. Um, how much do you have to deal with the political challenges of the Olympics as part of your role? Yeah, a lot. I mean, sport isn't immune to 
the you know the forces that we're all um, subject to in in daily life. I didn't think when I took the job in 2016 that the, the the day would come that we were postponing an Olympic Games, and um, you know I remember the day vividly, thinking, "My God, I wonder if the Olympic Games won't happen," mm-hmm. um, and we'd all be you know we'd all be kidding ourselves if we didn't have that thought because process. of the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, yeah. of course. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, because of the pandemic. Yeah, you know, and there there I was homeschooling, you yeah. know, and and my wife doing her job, and I'm trying to, you know, communicate. The postponement of the Olympic Games, yeah. which always happens, yeah, you know, it doesn't not happen. No, and and you know the immediate thoughts to well, what does the future hold? And of course, everyone went through that in their own way, in their own lives, in their own industries. I'm absolutely certain of it. But you know, the, those you know, you don't you don't necessarily plan or prepare for all of those scenarios or any you know, that scenario in particular felt pretty extreme i think in the moment um so you know what better example than to to than to, to to answer your question of actually yeah absolutely we're not immune to these forces and and every day you know you are you are of course we're trying to promote um you know give oxygen to the positive side of of of, of sport and the olympics but you know there are there are issues to deal with along the way we had to just very sadly deal with our first um uh, loss of an olympic medal following tokyo following doping offense committed um by cj uja um which meant our, our relay team lost lost their silver medal or had to give back their silver medal due to cj uja's um anti-doping rule violation you know and again that was you know that's a difficult scenario for us to deal with um it's not happy work (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination um but it's important i think it's important to it's important to put as much time and energy into the work you have to do um reactively in the face of crisis it is in you know preparing the positive stuff and the big campaigns and the the planning that goes into that you know and they work together right they work mm. together because you have to you have to manage the narrative um to be able to give yourself the oxygen to go and do the good stuff and to get the brand out there on the front foot and one absolutely impacts the other I guess um, just a personal observation, I guess that um, taking doping scandals and and, and drug misuse, it doesn't seem to have quite the same uh, press interest as maybe it would in other sports. I mean, I do remember Ben Johnson, the Canadian athlete back in, was it 1988? I do remember that. I mean, that that was that was an extremely famous, probably the most famous example Um, with the CJ Uja example. I mean, I don't remember it getting quite the press uh, scrutiny, maybe. Okay, I'll take um, that as a as a compliment. But I think it's it's interesting though because we we spent a lot of time, as you would imagine, as a as a leadership team and as a management team, talking about this. I'm very very lucky to work in an organisation where my chair, my CEO, are very in tune and alive to media comms marketing yeah. they yeah. get it they yeah. get it so we have very yeah. very good 
grown-up conversations around this subject. And I do think, as ever, when you're managing issues of crisis, a lot goes to the handling mm. and the approach. It's, I always find it fascinating, and I'm not, you know, I'm not using any examples here. I'm not even referring to anything in my own world, but it, it's you so often see the big stories, the big negative stories are actually big negative stories as a result of the handling <laughs> rather yeah. than the issue at yeah. hand, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, your relationship with, with the leadership. Um, so I believe the CEO is Andy Anson and yes. the chairman Sir Hugh Robertson. Yes. So how does your comms relationship, your, your role, how does, that, how does that work together with, uh, with the CEO and chairman? I think um, I'm very lucky that they're both very experienced yeah. in, in comms and, and, and media. Um, they're both very good. They both have really good relationships with the media as well. Yeah. Um, which which absolutely helps. It's just a good open dialogue. Yeah. None of us do anything without any of us knowing. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's that's a healthy start place, isn't it? You know, if if one of us gets an approach, we talk about it. Yeah. And we agree. Uh, and we sort of move on from there. So I am very blessed to be in a situation where I um, I know that comms, media, media relations, brand and marketing, you know, all the disciplines as they hang together um, are taken seriously and are really given consideration to. That's good to hear. Um, so we talked a little bit about the leadership. What about your team? How many are in your team itself? Uh, There's only 50 of us in the business. Oh, wow. So we're not a big, big yeah. organisation at all. Um, we, you know, we, we are lean um, outside of games time. We we expand yeah. to um, to bring on board uh, secondees, uh, support staff. When we get to the Olympic Games, the whole delegation is over 1,000 people at the Olympic Games, 370 athletes or so. Um, plus all of the support staff that, that surround it. Going back to your, your question, my uh, our function, comms, digital, marketing, yeah. data, there's about 13 of us in the okay. team at the yeah. moment. Um, you know, one or two in each of those functions, some specialist areas. Um, we all sit together really nicely. It's great. It's perfect having, the, you know, the, all of the sort of creative um, functions in one place. Yeah. Because ultimately we're all doing the same thing, right? Yeah. We're all communicating yeah. to our audiences. Yeah. That's 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 how I simplify it. So it's a great, it's a great energetic team, and that, you know I'm I'm really lucky, um, really lucky to have them, and I'm really lucky as well to know that we we have you know good levels of investment relative to the business to go and do our work. Are you a hybrid team, or are you all office based? Uh, Minimum three days a week. Yeah, yeah. Choice for everyone beyond that. You yeah, know, you work whichever whichever days you want of the three. Yeah, I think it's important because we are a sports team. Yeah, right. You know that we have a we have a team bond together. So there's one day in the week where we're all together. Tuesday because yeah. that's our sort of team meet day where yeah. we we want to look in the whites of each other's eyes and know that know that we're doing the right thing every every um, every week. Other than that, it's it's a pretty flexible environment that we work in. So it is hybrid. Yep, yeah, two days a week at home. That's good. I think. It gives people the capacity to, you know, have thinking time, not have their diary completely dominated by meetings. We still like a meeting at the BOA for sure. Uh, that's partly my fault, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it, it works well. I enjoy it. I think we all enjoy the mix. We love being in the, in the office as a team. Obviously, at games time, you know, we are we're we're we're, we're living. Um, Cheat by jowl, you know, for yeah. for four, five, six weeks. Yeah. Um, which you know, is, would that, and would that, that move different. outside of the office into a? Would that mean you you go to Paris then, or? 
We run we run both a UK office and yeah. we'll have a Paris office. Okay. Yeah, so we have a setup in Paris whereby um, we will have a we'll have a comms office. So, I mean, the, I, the, the stats always astound me with the Olympics, just to give you some context. Mm. You know, there are 10,500 athletes at the Games, but they're outnumbered two to one by the media. 22,000 accredited members of the media. Yeah. You know, we sit, we, we, we hire an office, they build and build offices for us in the main press centre, which is usually in some sort of, you know, soulless conference hall <laughs> in the middle of a city or on yeah. the outskirts of yeah. a city. So we sit in there, we have an office, the journalists come in and out, there are daily press conferences, real hive of activity. And we have a team of around 30, 40 people yeah. and we'll operate out of a base. We'll probably have a hotel where we're all together as a comms function. Yeah. Obviously, as I said, the delegation's over a thousand, so you can't house everyone together. But as a comms function, we try, sort of try and stick together, photographers, videographers, media officers. We have a program called Managing Victory, which is where we sort of, you know, anyone who gets a medal around the neck or has a significant story, we whisk them off on their own specialised media tour and, yeah. and, and breakfast rounds and stuff. So um, we triage those and look after them. Um, it's great. It's great fun. And then we have a UK office, you know, that are backing us up all the way, Some well, often through the night. I mean, this yeah. is the first games. Paris will be the first games I've worked on a European time zone. I did work London 2012, but I was a football media officer at the time, so it was sport specific. But, you know, every Olympics I've had since landing at the BOA has been either plus or nine, uh, sorry, plus eight or minus eight or nine hours time difference. Yeah. So I'm very much looking forward to working on a European yeah. Olympic Games. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, now, most companies have got uh, values that inform their culture and their ways of working and to a certain extent their decision making. Now, the Olympics has a charter, right? Um, how does the Olympic charter influence the BOA's actions and your comms role? Um, I don't think we have the charter out every day on the desk, no, you know, reading no. through it, but subconsciously it's yeah. there, you know it's there. And it's fascinating, really. I mean, yes, absolutely. The charter, you know, is our mandate. And that would be that that charter would apply to all of the uh, institutions uh, or associations that are for for the different countries. Yeah, yeah, it would absolutely. And it's fascinating because, you know, by virtue of the charter, it's quite a collegiate environment we work in. Yeah, you know, you would imagine it's quite adversarial in sport. Yeah, yeah? we're yeah. up against the US. We're yeah. up against the Australians. We're up against the, you know whichever. And the medal table is is the best the way. Of yeah, and the medal table is the manifestation yeah. of that, of course. And of course, on the field of play, the athletes are. You know they're in their, you know they're in their zone and they want to win and they want to perform. But actually, it's quite a collegiate system, you know, and the charter mandates it that way. So, for example, yeah, we market in the UK. We don't have a mandate to market outside of the UK, yeah, because the US market in the US, the French market in the French territory. So we're all responsible for our territories and the Olympic movement and the so promotion that, that, of it, but we're not up against it. That's really other. interesting, isn't it? So wh whereas you could sell, I don't know, a Barcelona football shirt Correct. here, you couldn't sell a USA athletics Yeah, vest. you could, but you'd need to go and have a very polite conversation with the US and have a mutual agreement around that and make sure they're very comfortable and happy with it. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. and and that happens in part, but in the main, we all respect each other's territories and we mark it, and and you know, and and that's because we're all there promoting the movement, mm. the Olympic movement. We're not trying to go against each other. And your analogy is exactly right. We don't sell Team GB, you know, apparel in LAX, and they don't sell Team USA gear in, yeah. in London Heathrow, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, that's no, fascinating. Um, how 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 important is it to you um, that? comms i mean we mentioned your relationship with the ceo and chairman how important is it to you that comms has a place at the top table 
Um, in some organisations, it's a C-suite role. In other organisations, it, it isn't. How, how, how much does that matter, do you think? I think it's critical. I think it's critical to a modern organisation. I think I would struggle, you know, to be in an organisation where it wasn't important. And I think, you know, you have to contextualise that. You know, I don't think you make decisions, you know, based on you know, what the media um, may be saying in the moment. You know, um, you're not trying to run a business through the prism of um, media coverage or the like. But you, as a comms, you know, as a comms expert, I always think understanding the business at the highest level, understanding the context of the decisions that are made and how that works against, you know, the court of public opinion and and, and um, the perception of a brand and media perception and media coverage. And contextualising it all is really, really important. You know, it's so important for me to understand decision-making processes. Um, and of course, be part of that as well as appropriate sometimes it's just important to listen and know and just have the pulse of an organization and i think people often talk about you know um comms being the sort of conscience of an organization i think that's true to an extent as well i think again i go back to the fact that i'm very lucky that i exist in an organization that i think is very grown up in its thought processes and the way it manages and and, and goes about its business ultimately so i never go home and have any sort of qualms about about that um, but yeah, for me, you know, it's critical to be at the top table. Um, I don't know I could do my job if I wasn't. And I've spoken to some um, comms leaders on this podcast in the past who talked about um, how they support the CEO, for example, uh, speaking at events, that kind of thing. Is that part of your role as well? Um, or, or, or is that not a, a, a key part of it? To a degree, to a degree. And I think, you know, clearly as you get closer to games and the spotlight is on and there yeah. are more and more engagements, then that is true. But um you know, and again, you work with different individuals. You know, some people, you know, want you to, can you write speech for me? You know, or or may need support in that sense or may not be as practised as others, depending on the sort of maturation of their career, I suppose. Again, I'm in an environment where I'm working with two people and, and a senior leadership team, very experienced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, really experienced. So they don't really need me to to write, my, uh, write their speeches yeah. um, for them. And in fact, they'd probably pick me up on my grammar and spelling anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. And indeed they do. <laughs> well, shame on them. Um, so final question before we move into the quick fire round, Scott. Um, and, and it's less of a comms question, actually. I'm just interested to know who who are the stars of Team GB that we should look out for as we count down to, to Oh, what a great question that is. Do you know, I mean, the, the challenge is for us to find the ones that are the sort of you know, the unknowns, the, the the who's next. I remember Tom Dean getting out of the pool in Tokyo with two gold medals around his neck. And I'm thinking, crikey, I wish mm. I would have known more about this guy because mm. he's great, you know. Um, there will be a mix of some, you know, hopefully usual suspects doing what they do. I've been very, very fortunate to watch Matt Whitlock win his Pommel Horse gold medal two games in a row. Yeah. And obviously there were no spectators in Tokyo and I didn't get to go to many events because of the restrictions. So I mainly sat in our media office, but the gymnastics hall was just over the road and I thought, I've got to go and see Max Whitlock on the pommel horse. And it was just incredible. And I was so fortunate, probably one of about 200 people in there in the moment, you know, watching this guy who spent five years through the pandemic, get on a pommel horse for 
what, 90 seconds. With all that pressure on his shoulders, win a gold medal. And it was just incredible. But that doesn't answer your question. So, you know, who who to look out he for? Is, he is competing, though, in the... Uh, he's in, I think, believe he's indicated he's going to do so. And I really hope he does because yeah. he, I think he's a, he's a phenomenal athlete. I think in gymnastics, I think the, the, the depth of talent that's coming through in the gymnastics team is incredible. I look at triathlon and see a real depth of talent there. You know, there, there are some incredible athletes that don't get to go to the Olympic Games in British triathlon, such as the Calibre. We have a, a whole new boxing team that are pretty fresh. And I think, you know, there are some, some very talented individuals there that we should be looking out for in the new sports. The likes of Bess Shriver again, Sky Brown will go again in skateboarding, we hope. And that would be fantastic from our point of view. Definitely one to watch, world champion. Um, Keely Hodgkinson, we saw in the yeah. indoors at the weekend. Eight hundred meters, yeah, right. absolutely, and 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 Jasmine Sawyer's. So you know, there is a there is a real depth of talent out there. We could go on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, some fantastic names to look out for, and I think you know the 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 we we won't know the full roster until pretty close to the games. We're looking at around three hundred and seventy athletes that will go. Um, and, and I think we'll be, you know, as ever, we'll be highly competitive in all of the sports. Looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much, Scott. And thank you so much for taking part in this this podcast. But you're not off the hook just yet. Um, so uh, I ask each of my podcast guests uh, to answer six quickfire comms related questions in 90 seconds-ish. Um, are you up for that? Yeah. Okay, Let's good do stuff. Let's go. Right. Number one, sum up your communication style in three words. Fair, uh, transparent, collegiate. Of all the comms you receive or emails you get, roughly what percentage do you delete without reading? Every cold call one uh, from a digital or, you know, random marketing agency. Yeah. yeah. Everything else gets read. Hundred percent. So, what's that about fifty percent, or is it? Is there's it a lot. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of those. Any any email that has substance gets read. Good, good, good. What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? Crumbs. Do you know what? It may have been one of our own emails from TGB telling me that there's only about five hundred days to go to the Olympics, <laughs> and knowing that we need to crack on with our work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in your opinion, what's the one thing a business can do to boost engagement? be real you know just just be genuine you know not too contrived it's interesting coming from someone who works in marketing brand and pr but you know be natural what makes a good communicator lots of things um ultimately it's about relationships for me it's about building relationships and if you can do that on a micro level with an individual you can do it on a on a much greater scale with a mass audience so um, relationships, regardless of the, the tools we use, the modern media methods we use, the social platforms and the digital channels we use, it all comes back to relationships for me. So to have the ability to form personal, meaningful relationships is critical. And if you can do that, I think you can be a good communicator. Which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? What a great question that is. Um, I remember watching Educating Yorkshire and there was a young lad called Mushy 
who had a stammer. I remember. And stood up in front of his school, and it's the most moving piece of television I've ever seen. And I watch him from afar vicariously through his social channels these days and see the public speaking he does and, and um, how he holds himself and how he's developed as an individual. And I still think it's one of the, the greatest stories I've ever seen. I love that answer. That's that's a really original answer. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time today, Scott. I loved that. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, including live updates and early access to each podcast episode, why not sign up to the newsletter at deletedeleteengage.substack.com.